This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velour, and I'm an associate editor and Asia columnist, as well as ST's former foreign editor. This series of podcasts focuses on Asian issues and distills experience from my four decades of covering the continent. In this episode, I will be talking about Myanmar, or Burma as it is known in the West, a country that is currently undergoing what can only be said to be some of its darkest days of despair. It is a complicated situation, made worse by the implacable hostility of the opposing sides, the military junta, which has seized all power since the 2nd of February, and the democracy activists on the other side, led by the Nobel Prize winning Aung San Suu Kyi, who is currently under house arrest inside her lakeside home in Yangon. Her only public appearance so far was when she was briefly produced in court in late May. Meanwhile, flash mobs of protesters frequently appear on the streets. There have been desertions from the military some up to the level of officers. And a fresh wave of refugees from the country are showing up in neighboring nations like Thailand and India. And all this power play is taking place within the context of the frightening pandemic, which has strained the nation's health system like never before. The anti-COVID campaign went completely off the rails after the coup and today, There are, on average, more than 70 new cases being reported daily, with countless more going unrecorded. What's more, many doctors and nurses have joined the civil disobedience movement against the military, straining the medical care system further. In a short while, I shall explain the complexities behind Myanmar's past struggles. But before I do that, let me give you a quick update on the run-up to the current situation as I record this podcast in early June. The civilian government was ousted by the military just as it was about to be sworn into office for another term after winning last November's national election by a landslide. The military-backed party, Union Solidarity and Development Party, or USDP, won less than a tenth of the available seats open for contest. I say open for contest because fully a quarter of the seats in Parliament are reserved for military nominees and are not contested for this reason. All this was clearly bad news for Senior General Min Aung Hlaing, the current military supremo. He had probably expected that a better performance by USDP, plus the solid 25% reserved seats of the military, could have helped him take over the country using the constitutional route. With that out of the question, he seems to have tried to negotiate with Suu Kyi, but she proved adamant in her insistence of being sworn into office, and the coup followed. Unquestionably, this has been a setback. Some investors have pulled out already, and many who were considering investing in Myanmar are holding back. This is not a good situation for one of the weakest economies in Southeast Asia. The pity is that in the 1950s, and the early 1960s. Burma, as it was then known, was actually more advanced than many Southeast Asian states of the time. 
its doctors and teachers were in demand all over, including in Singapore. That makes its dramatic subsequent slide such a waste and a shame. Today, the two great mainstream forces, the military and the people-backed democracy movement, seem so far apart that the prospects of an agreed settlement between the two seem very distant. Even more alarmingly, the ethnic armed organizations that often have warred with the Burmese state have found fresh vigor since the coup because the center has weakened amidst the civil military standoff. Shockingly, the military has even used its air force to strafe some of the rebel groups, in a sense, bombing its own people. If this goes on for too long, there's danger that Southeast Asia could be looking at its first failed state. Seen from the outside, the solutions to Myanmar's darkness stare you in the face. The military must return to the barracks, the vote of the people must be respected and the results of the elections must stand, and the civilian government led by Ms. Aung San Suu Kyi should be allowed to take office for another term. This government then can resume its work in negotiating peace with the rest of ethnic insurgents, perhaps even bringing some of them into government to make the peace an enduring one and move quickly to tackle the pandemic and the sliding economy. It's not quite so simple, however, and this is where history plays a part. You see, unlike India's Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru, or Malaysia's Tengku Abdul Rahman, or Indonesia's Sukarno and Mohammed Hatta, Myanmar's founding father was not a civilian, but a revolutionary figure, and his name was General Aung San. He is credited with being the father of both the Myanmar nation and its military. Initially, he and 30 comrades, as they were known, took help and training from the Japanese. Then they switched allegiance to the British, with whom they negotiated independence. General Long San was assassinated shortly before the country was given independence from British rule. It is his third child, Su Chi, who leads the National League for Democracy and is today caught in a deadly struggle with the military her father founded. Right from the get-go, Burma's politics has been a troubled one. Karen rebels had encircled Rangoon Airport within months of independence, threatening the government of Prime Minister Unu. In 1958, the army was actually invited to take control. In 1962, General Nevin conducted a coup partly against a background of resentment within the dominant Bamar community that Chinese and Indians were controlling the economy, particularly trade. Myanmar has had riots in the 1970s and a student uprising in the 1980s. Early in this century, the Buddhist monks of the country rose up and all the time, the ethnic organizations have troubled the central government. Along with this is a strong sense of ethno-nationalism among the majority Bamar people of the country. This comes from having staved off successive waves of attacks throughout history, including from the Qing emperors of China. This ethno-nationalism is one reason behind the Rohingya issue in Myanmar's Rakhine state. As you know, state violence against the Rohingya has triggered international headlines. It has also caused a massive refugee crisis in neighboring Bangladesh, 
which has been hosting hundreds of thousands of them in camps around the town of Cox's Bazaar. As Ambassador Gautam Mukhopadhyay, one of the finest observers of the Myanmar situation, tells me the Rohingya suffer a kind of triple jeopardy. Firstly, they were considered racially Indian. Second, they are Muslims, who suffered exclusion from the national races of Myanmar. The third factor that is causing the persecution of Rohingya is a growing sense in Myanmar, which has also been seen elsewhere, that Buddhism is coming under a state of siege from Islam. A further complication is that the Rohingya supported the Japanese against the British, and they wanted to join East Pakistan rather than Burma at independence. If you consider all this, you get a better understanding of why Aung San Suu Kyi and the military are both so part of the mold and the national consciousness that makes up Myanmar, and why both carry such a strong sense of entitlement that they ought to be the architects of Myanmar's destiny. Hopefully, it also explains why Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize-winning democracy icon, should risk her international reputation by being so unsympathetic towards the Rohingya. In fact, Julie Bishop, who raised the issue with Ms. Suu Kyi when she was Australia's foreign minister, once told me that it was as though a wall would come in front of Suu Kyi's eyes if the Rohingya were mentioned. In a perverse way, Suu Kyi's defense of the military's actions against Rohingya in international fora has made her even more popular at home with the majority Bamar. It helped in creating the landslide for her in the last election that so upset the military's carefully laid plans to take power. Let me conclude this podcast by saying that the darkness at the heart of Myanmar has deep roots. At this point, you need to be an incredible optimist to see things improving rapidly. The junta is notorious for wanting to keep outsiders away from the issues, even though General Heng did travel to a special ASEAN summit called by the ASEAN chair some weeks ago. A small window of hope opened this week when General Heng, the military ruler, received Peter Mora, head of the International Red Cross in Nepito, the Myanmar capital. Mr. Mora is believed to have pressed for his staff to be allowed to visit prisons once again, as well as to be given humanitarian access to the conflict areas. Hopefully, the tug of war between the various sides while crippling the nation will not become so dire that the state will fall apart because that would lead not just Myanmar, but also Indochina into darkness. Thank you for listening. This is Ravi Velour, and I should be back in July with the next edition of the Speaking of Asia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our revamped Asian Insider podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Goodbye. That was an SPH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sph.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.